0: Hello, it's Mark Pack here and I've got a special bonus episode for you this time. Rather than a normal episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts, I'm running an episode from the excellent Not Enough Champagne podcast, including a somewhat improbable comparison between me and Terry Pratchett. Now, you might recall me mentioning Not Enough Champagne as one of my favourite podcasts. I like it so much, despite or rather because it's done by two Labour Party activists, Corey and Steve, and therefore gives a rather different take on the world from mine. Different enough to be thought-provoking and a guard against insular thinking without being so different as to cause me to hit the stop button in disgust. And the reason for picking this particular episode that they've kindly let me rerun here, well, In it, they talk about my book, Bad News. See what some non-Lib Dems make of it and enjoy listening, including hearing, if you stick right through to the end, their cracking theme tune by Dave Depper. Hope you enjoy their show and do subscribe to their podcast too.
1: Welcome to The of Champagne, a podcast you can't judge by headlines alone. My name's Corey Hazelest. I'm a partner of propaganda with Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Uh, So, friend of the podcast and one of our celebrity listeners maybe the first and original celebrity listener mark pack has written a book it's called bad news what the headlines don't tell you and he kindly sent us a review copy so we're going to talk about it So we're going to have a review of the book up on the not enough champagne website once i've written it i think so hopefully that'll be up in the next week or so i've read the book in its entirety steve um mm-hmm. i would have passed it to you to read it except none of us can leave the house at the moment
2: yeah if the makes- uh, lockdown has prevented us from passing on uh, on the book unfortunately
1: <laughs> we, we, what we've done for this podcast is just picked out three or four key bits that we're going to have, I think, um, talk about it in a little bit more depth. Basically, what the book is, is a guide to how the news works and to help readers consume the news around them, I suppose. There's a kind of three different sort of bits that it's about. So one of them is a sort of... If anyone read Nick Davis's Flat Earth News, kind of talking about journalism and what stories get covered and why, how news features geographically, So some stories which are focused on London and America get more coverage because that's where journalists are, that kind of stuff. There's lots of stuff about statistics as well the numbers that are used in the news. And Darrell Huff wrote a book a few years ago called How to Lie with Statistics. And a lot of the stuff that Mark wrote, writes about is quite similar to stuff in that book as well. And then the other bit which we're going to have more of a talk about in this podcast is a talk about political news, particularly political polls, election campaigns, looking at how they are covered. I found probably the most interesting part of the book, actually. And it is a very well written book. And I expect if you've read Mark's website, you know, he's able to write and joke the footnotes even. I don't know if you got this in the bits that you've seen, Steve, but the footnotes even are quite entertaining.
2: Yeah, there there were a couple of uh, quite witty footnotes in the bits that um, that uh, I have seen as part of the uh, preparation for this. There's uh, almost something quite, I don't know, Pratchettesque like Terry Pratchett and the way he did his kind of like. Mm-hmm. Footnotes. That's genuinely what it what it reminded me of.
1: I like the footnotes, but not gone to paperback back front cover. But pratchettesque might. I might confuse a lot of people, assuming they were going to get some sort of fantasy world, um, <laughs> disc world style book. And then it's about Lib Dems.
2: To be fair, given the Lib Dems, I know most of them would probably be our uh, massive uh, fantasy nerds and Love Pratchett. So they'd probably be uh, be one of the few uh, groups that would be happy with that. <laughs> this is true.
1: What we're going to talk about first. So as I say, the big tweet about the first 800 pages of the book is essentially how to unpick um different news stories so by looking at say the headline looking at the sources looking at who's quoted looking at who's not quoted looking at punctuation in the headline uh, for instance so if there's uh, quote marks in a headline usually a sign of a very very misleading story Um,
2: likewise the other thing uh, is if there's a question mark then likelihood the answer isn't to that question is no
1: Basically, punctuation in news stories, generally good, shows they can write. Punctuation in headlines, not good. So we talked about the fact it's a sort of flat earth new style kind of look at the kind of stories that get covered and how they get covered and why they get covered in that way. And I suppose one of the themes that runs through the book is the fact that
2: um, truth moves too slowly for the news. I mean, there is that kind of old old, old saying that, um, you know, a lie travels half. Halfway around the world before the truth has even got its shoes on, which I don't know if that is a widespread saying or if it's just something that, that, that my parents and grandparents uh, uh, said. But um, I it's a Graham Parker song
1: as well, so I think it is a, a known idiom.
2: Okay, excellent. But yeah, so the notion that you know uh, the truth takes uh, a, a while to get out is is, is nothing new. Um, but I think certainly in, in, in relation to the to headlines and the news, especially the modern day news, it, it, it's definitely become more of an issue. Because we live in an age of constant deadlines where, you know, you need to get something out either online or to print or tweeted out or shared on Facebook or, or something for a video that's going to be going up on YouTube. Um, there's always a pressing deadline, which means there's always a need for more content. And as a result of that, the, the media as a whole—this isn't just limited to to just um, like the print media um, the media as a whole are just going right. I need a story. Give me a story. Which means when something comes along and it's got a, a nice element in it, which can be turned into uh, in a fact, and it can be turned into an angle or spun in a certain way, they go great. We need to, t- to write up a story on this on this particular part of this this wider story and make that the focus of the headline or, or whatever because that's what's going to grab people's attention and when people see that they don't necessarily engage with the whole story as a whole uh, with the whole story or they don't read the entire piece or they don't watch the entire video they just kind of blindly follow or kind of assume that it's true and then retweet it share it whatever and then it just kind of goes out into the world and even within the articles themselves, they'll be, they can be contradictory to the headline. Um, so you end up in this very odd situation where the media is propagating, uh, in effect, inaccuracies, if you want to be um, nice, or outright lying, if you want to be a bit more harsh, or in the name of just getting content so they can get clicks so they can make money, whilst actually the stories themselves are just saying something completely different.
1: Because of the nature of checking for facts and because of why the nature of the collection of scientific evidence and the collection of proof, it doesn't really lend itself to checking stories. I mean, there's a couple of examples he gives, and actually one of them I thought was really interesting because I didn't even realise the story itself had been retracted. So, 2003, Mark talks about the reports of looting from Baghdad's National Museum of Iraq and there were reports at the time which were sourced um, well sourced they talked about the theft of 170,000 objects but actually the real number that was looted was less than a tenth of that so it was just under
2: 14,000. And of those uh, artifacts that were taken most of them weren't even necessarily looted um, it was, uh, there were three specific incidents only one of which was a looting. Um, so even like the 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 process behind the loss was was inaccurate as well. okay, the
1: truth came out, but it was two years afterwards, and as you say it's the the truth came you know two years afterwards, but after all, that lie has gone all the way around the world and i didn't realize until reading the book actually that they that any sort of retraction from that story had come out the the one in terms of um scientific evidence, and I suppose particularly the the media the fact that a lot of journalists maybe aren't very science savvy and have problems reporting science and certainly problems of trying to ascertain truth with science are the um the stuff about Andrew Wakefield and the MMR vaccine.
2: Uh, Andrew Wakefield and his um, vaccine study on, on on MMR is a very good example of kind of like the real world impacts that these um kind of like well basically the the failure to understand Um, or the failure to check stories properly, um, what that actually can can have in terms of real-world consequences, because the anti-vax movement exists largely today in the form it does because of Andrew Wakefield. You know, we have seen, as a a result of this, you know, diseases that were once basically wiped out, like uh, measles and chickenpox and things like that, coming back in various parts Mm. of the US and where where there's been a mass drop-off in in people getting vaccinations because people are, are concerned about the impacts that the vaccination will have even though there is absolutely zero scientific evidence to support uh to support that worry.
1: One of the things that kind of goes to the book is um Mark Pack talking about how actually he's reading fewer and fewer daily newspapers about very very few people now I suppose watch the news regularly at six or watch the news regularly at ten part of their regular routine what instead people tend to do is tune in when there is a big story. So I think when Boris Johnson on Monday was announced the the, the the lockdown of the UK, I think 27 million people watched it, but that doesn't happen for news all the time. And so what, in Mark Pack's view anyway, what the news needs to do to counteract that, what they've been doing is becoming more sensationalist to try and cut through and um, and you can see that headlines in particular if we go to, to that bit. So there's um, an interesting story it talks about from The Guardian. Actually, another good thing, what well, another really interesting thing about the book is obviously it talks a lot about the issues in the media and the issues with facts in reporting stories. It doesn't just use the red tops and the tabloids. You'll find as many examples from The Guardian in the book as you will do from the Daily Mail which I found particularly interesting like it does kind of get you out of that filter bubble an example Pat uses from the Guardian is um, outcry as residents want to turn London youth club into coffee shop is the headline except then if you go further into the article but actually residents wanted to repurpose the space as maybe a tumble drive facility for residents a private library and internet facility or a coffee shop Outcry, as residents want to turn London Youth Club into library, isn't a very eye catching story. And so what The Guardian has done in that headline is they've um, chosen the most sensationalist version to, to broadcast when actually you can write a very different version of that story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and essentially, what a lot of this boils down to is that um, an awful lot of the media is in a a very difficult position financially. People's um, consumption habits are, are changing drastically, and they're desperately trying to not even gain a new audience, but maintain the audience that they already have. And as a result of this, they have to, they've ended up almost making hail mary passes of these kind of like sensationalist headlines to try and grab people's attention. Because we exist in a world where the attention of the audience is audience is a limited commodity. Um, we only have so much of it to give at any any point in time. Um, and as a result of that, you know they're they're constantly trying to drag us back in by 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 uh, in effect. You know, yelling at us on social media to kind of look at this drastic, sensationalist thing that's happening. Look how terrible this is. And we're more engaged because we're more likely to engage with those than we are with actually as much as we like to to share wholesome pictures of cats and puppies online. You know, we're not going to click on The Guardian for that, are we? You know, we're we're just going to go to that that one specific Twitter feed or that one Reddit forum. Um, You know, feel good stories don't sell papers. Disasters and catastrophes do.
1: There's a couple of things I think on that. So one of them is that I think one of the reasons why I think Mark's written the book is to try and make us more an active consumer of news rather than a passive consumer of news. So rather than just sitting at our screens and blindly sharing anything on social media or a social media story, or you read the headline on the Guardian website, whatever, and you share it out, try and make people outraged or to share your view, it's more about being able to go behind the headlines, being able to unpick, unpack maybe, different parts of the story. It's meant to be almost a guide for you to be the detective to work out things. But I think the interesting thing, actually, in terms of headlines, and the reason I think I wanted to focus on headlines in, the, in this discussion is, it's not really something that Marl Pack talks about, but so what he mentions is that the, obviously the headline of a news story is almost always going to be the most misleading part of the uh, article but that makes me think about the way in which actually we we started to consume news stories especially from other news sources online and that tends to be exclusively through the headlines which are put on screenshots on twitter and, and then shared on twitter or whatsapp sometimes facebook it used to be that idea of clickbait so you know the daily mail would have a deliberately uh, provocative article that everyone would click on and get outraged by, except people don't tend to click on it anymore. So the, the, the website doesn't necessarily earn those ad revenue for the amount of clicks it gets. Instead, what people tend to do is get from say, the mail or the times or the telegraph, they'll screenshot the headline And then share that on social media. I think, especially now, there's um, a paywall as well on the Times and Telegraph articles. Um, You don't actually have the ability to read that whole article. And so it means it's actually maybe harder for people to get out of the filter bubble, but also it means the only way you see those articles or consume those articles is with the headline, which is the most misleading bit so it ends up almost confirming people in their filter bubbles rather than helping people get out of their filter bubbles
2: from from some work i did um back at my old job for for one of my old clients and we were looking at kind of like how people actually engaged with um social media and news stories and and things like that that that, that, that came across their their news feeds The, the reality is the vast majority of things that we share online we don't actually read or engage with um properly in any way you'll probably find different studies which give you kind of like slightly different um percentage point uh, percentage but broadly speaking it's the same kind of rough amount um so the stat i found was that 59 of things that we share online we, we don't actually read we just go oh hey this 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 effectively confirms my my pre-existing biases or is something i'm really interested in am i going to retweet that am i going to share that and which will then go out to my followers who are largely going to be in all likelihood, very similar to myself. So you're right in that. It definitely reinforces those filters, uh, those bubbles that we've created uh, on, on, online, um, especially when, when you know, as you say, we can't access the actual article um, for a lot of these places anymore. So we've, all we've got to go off of is the headline, which is designed to be sensational and may not necessarily reflect the actual article article's main point.
1: But I think the best bits of the book are the more political bits on things like opinion polls. So there's a 20 page chapter on polls, which I think the government should put into a little pamphlet and post through the door of anyone who is thinking about commenting on polls on Twitter. Because, again, a lot of it is a lot of it is things that we've sort of talked about on the podcast Already, And if you follow websites like UK Polling Report or you look at the sort of stuff that Matt Singh might do in Number Cruncher Politics or John Curtis, what have you, like, a lot of the talk of, say, margins of error or is it an outlier poll or is it a trend? These are things that we've talked about. But I think Mark does a really, really good job in defending polls, talking about the issues with news coverage of them and dispelling a lot of the myths that you'll see whenever a poll comes up in a good 20 pages. And just just one example that I really liked is, and you always, without fail, see this when a poll comes up, which is, oh, well, I'm never asked by an opinion pollster. know, I've never been asked by one. So who are these people that they're asking? And I'm and blessing, Mark actually does the maths. So yeah, I really like pollster- that. Yeah. So a poll will survey a thousand people and there are 23 companies in the trade body, apparently, calling to the British Polling Council. But let's just assume there's 30 companies. So if 30 companies are doing a survey every week, that's 1500 surveys in a year. Now, that means even if every single person whose poll is different, that's one and a half million people a year. With an adult population of 40 million, that puts your chances at less than one in 20. But in practice, it's lower than that because some people are asked to join in more than once
2: in in practice you have probably about a three to four percent if not lower chance of participating in any in any given poll at any point, like it's there's there's not a massive chance that you are actually going to be asked to participate unless you're a part of something like YouGov where it's online surveys where you have to opt into it.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and even like just the way that it explains margins of error as someone who's not really trained in statistics, I found really really helpful. And honestly, it's it 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 makes the the stuff on polls. I think is it makes the book it's worth the price of the book on its own, actually. Just for to get your head around the issue of polling, but also to next time you end up in an online argument about X poll says why, which actually we're seeing quite a bit at the moment anyway. Because um, not to you know venture into the thorny field of current events, but there was a poll out yesterday I believe that put the Tories at about 54% and Labour on about 25. And even though actually the the thing that there is no point really in looking at polls at the moment because this is no normal political situation instead you have the usual guff that is mentioned about polls all polls are Tory or and I'm never asked a poll and what can a poll that's only got a thousand people in tell you all that kind of nonsense and actually Mark has done a very very nice calm demolition of all that kind of nonsense which is is really worth reading. The, the thing I think which is interesting as well is the what it talks about the the coverage of um, opinion polls. And again, it's another little bit of a theme that runs the book, which is news coverage, which looks at politics in particular through the kind of angle of the horse race. So, you know, who's up, who's down? Is that vote going to pass? But doesn't actually look at the underlying issue behind the policy or behind the thing that it's going to get voted on. It's just looked at in terms of, is it going to pass or not? Or who's, who's up and who's down?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and fundamentally that goes back to like the, what we were talking about earlier about the sensationalism of, of, of journalism, because drama sells drama is what people kind of like actually interested in like the actual technical guff and 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 things like for for politics for science for but for welfare anything really um people are going to find very dry and largely speaking unless you're actually really interested in it quite boring um you know i try and and stay pretty pretty well well read on various issues but You know, even I end up kind of looking at some things um, and to do with certain aspects of social policy or or science and go, or or whatever. And I go, you know what? I just can't bring myself to actually read this or understand this properly, just because it's not something I'm actually particularly interested in. But if you put it into a dramatic perspective and attach a narrative to it and attach stakes to it, suddenly that's something that everybody can understand. That's something that everybody can engage with. So. From from the po- p- perspective of policy and, and I suppose elections as well, you know that kind of that who's up who's down narrative is is just much more engaging because it's something everybody can latch onto and can understand.
1: But but I, I see I take slightly issue with that because I think it's more it's easier to write about because you just need to have someone who's sat in Westminster writing about it, whereas actually you could it it would take a bit more research but actually you probably could write a very readable article with narrative hooks and fancy graphics about issues of social policy. It's just that would take longer
2: and therefore isn't written about. You, you absolutely can write a readable article about pretty much anything if you, if you do take the time to it. But one, having the time in this age of com- needing constant content that's quicker and easier to churn out, as we've kind of discussed already, is a separate issue. But it's also the fact that even if you did produce a really good readable article uh, on, on a complex issue, the reality is the people who are reading it are going to be you and me and people like Mark, not necessarily the people who are buying The Sun.
1: Even if it was just a base
2: level of okay, and, and I think this is a point that
1: Mark makes in the book actually is rather than it be about you know the horse race of who's up and who's down, it could be, okay, what issues do you care about? Is it education is it social policy what are the politicians saying about that issue but that's not necessarily even what is written about in the news or actually if we use this to come on to the final thing we're going to talk about it's not even really what is talked about in terms of election campaign coverage either and again another really good section of the book is when mark talks about the flaws in election campaign coverage as he sees it partly it's the runners and riders thing we've talked about but it's also this idea of the media going over the top about amazing new campaign techniques like collecting email lists or using data to look at um and analyze the behavior of various voters which um mark and Mark, I suppose, literally wrote the book on winning elections, but um, seems to think is a little bit overblown.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the stuff uh, on kind of like the election campaigns was something I found quite quite interesting from the bits that I've been able to obviously uh, read so far, because there is definitely, and, and I'm I'm coming from this as a perspective of somebody who works in like digital marketing and digital media. Um, there is definitely a lack of understanding within the within the media of digital. Uh, kind of like marketing techniques, and kind of like the impact they have on people, and the, as a result of that, the impact they might have on on an election. And there's definitely a level of kind of like illiteracy um, in in a number of areas about the more modern tactics, I suppose, and strategies of 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 electoral campaigning um so it would not surprise me if basically from from the ground up there was just a lack of understanding about what 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 campaigning actually is what it's meant to achieve you know what what we should be kind of like focusing on from a kind of like a media perspective
1: but so i mean one of the things it talks about is um barack obama's email list Mm. and um one of the, the the amount the plethora of articles that came out about the um amazingness of the obama email list when actually you know if you were to un- unpick it how many of those email addresses are correct i mean i've certainly been in the position of i wanted to collect emails for an email list for an organization i'm part of and then you you know get the names that people have written down at the end of the night i think i can't read any of these <laughs> names to put them into the sheet and so you've got issues of transcription You've got issues of actually there might be people in the UK who are part of Obama's American mail list who can't vote. And the other example is the 2015 election as well. Emphasis and lots of articles were put on the the, the, the campaign team having lots of data to analyse of, of various voters, whereas actually the academic studies produced about the campaign afterwards, they found it actually the reason the Tories won in 2015 was... National swing plus an incumbency advantage in some of the areas they had in twenty
2: ten. I mean, certainly for the um from from the British kind of like perspective, there's kind of raised questions around like not just in terms of the media's kind of belief in like the the importance of campaigns and certain campaigning tactics, but for for political parties as well. Um, who kind of I think gets swept up in the in the narratives that the media actually create in and of themselves when they discuss these things? Because you know so much of the um, talk was uh, you know has been of you know the role of uh, Cambridge Analytica and that kind of page social media and and, and things like that um, in there in um, in the Brexit referendum and, and like the Tory campaigns and for for the general elections and the and the reality is. It's probably not actually made a massive difference in in any massive way. Maybe in some areas in a small way, but it's on on its own. It doesn't shift anything. Um, it's it's a small cog in a wider campaign, which is just you know, of which the victorious side was better than the uh, uh, than than the losing side.
1: To come back to a sort of a point you made earlier, it's about this this need for a narrative isn't it the idea of a kind of national swing can be quite an abstract concept whereas if you can say oh it's because of this and you kind of give it a name especially if it's a, sh- kind of a shadowy name that sounds like a kind of a company that's run by a bond villain
2: in my head a kind of like a misremembering of sorts of a, of a quote again from terry pratchett actually going back to uh, what we were talking about earlier um, the mark
1: uh, pack of fan sci- science fiction writing
2: <laughs> absolutely yeah there's a kind of a quote from um, one of the, I think it's the second Science of the Discworld book, um, where he basically says, anthropologists got it wrong when they named our species Homo sapiens, wise man. Uh, it's an arrogant and big headed thing to say, wisdom being one of our least evident features. But in reality, we are pans naran, the storytelling chimpanzee, you know, mad more interested in stories than they are in wisdom and, and, and fact and truth. We engage with stories a hell, of, a hell of a lot more. So yeah, sorry. Just thought that was a nice little kind of... Uh, thing to throw in there
1: i would say it's available from all good bookshops but you can't go to any so buy it from bookshops online instead um it's published by Biteback. i assume you can get it through their website waterstones and foils or a nice independent bookshop if it if you if you've got anyone near you that's ordering stuff online hello mark if you're listening you did say on facebook you'd come and talk about the book so it'd be interesting actually to try and talk about bad news and the And the coronavirus, I think, would be interesting if you if you fancy coming on. Right. If you wanted to give us some money so that we could write some misleading stories, you could go to our Patreon page, couldn't you, Steve?
2: You could indeed. Although obviously our stories would not be misleading. Uh, We are better than that. Um, We're
1: all inherently infallible, Steve.
2: Uh, but yeah you can head over to our patreon patreon.com/ not enough champagne you can throw us a couple of quid that um, money goes towards paying for our costs um, you know hosting for the website, hosting for the, uh, the podcast feed um yeah so um head over there you can if you do uh sign up you can get access to exclusive episodes exclusive content um, such as articles uh, early access to bits and pieces uh as well so yeah um yeah take a look and uh let us know if you uh fancy becoming our patrons
1: we also have a website which is not of champagne.com our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not champagne james cram designed the logo you can follow him on twitter at james cram and dave depper composed our theme tune pretty good times we'll probably be out in the week if you want to hear that episode in the week you're going to have to subscribe to us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts my twitter handle is at paperback writer
2: mine's at acoustic radical
1: happy plotting.